Hey, good morning. A.W. Tozer said that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But I would add this. What comes to our minds when we think about our Father is one of the most important things about us. Why? Your earthly Father was your first and most impactful portrait of God as your Father. Naturally, and often subconsciously, we project our earthly relationship with our dad or lack thereof onto our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, let me just go through some common types of earthly dads, okay? And I hope even as you hear me saying this, right, that that what comes to our minds when we think about our father is one of the most important things about us, that if you're a dad in the room like myself, I hope that kind of puts the fear of God in you because it should. But let me kind of walk through some, some common types of earthly dads that I'm sure all of us can relate to at least one of these a little bit. So you have the, the non-existent dad. For whatever reason, perhaps um, they passed away. Um, perhaps they just left. They're just completely out of the picture the non-existent dad. You have the, the work dad. This is the dad who works long hours and provides financially for the family, but when they are present, they're really tired and rather uninvolved in your life. You have the there but, but not there dad. This is, this is a dad who provides, he protects, he's, he's there physically regularly, but hardly ever has meaningful conversations with you and doesn't really know how to express that he loves you. You know he does, but you never quite hear it from him. You have the, the soccer dad dad. This is, this is the dad who's, who's really involved. He's there. You, you knew that he, he cared for you, but he consistently struggled to, to hold a job and to pay the bills and to provide for the family. You got the, the shotgun cleaning dad, okay? This is the dad who does a great job of protecting his family, right, of protecting his kids. You, you know, whenever there's a threat, he's going to be right there. Whenever a boy's coming around, he's going to be on the porch cleaning his gun. But besides that, he's pretty preoccupied with his own hobbies and his work and whatever else and isn't really that involved in your life. You got the angry dad. This is a dad who probably provides for their family, but you kind of walk on eggshells around him. He seems to be upset pretty often, so you just don't want to poke the bear. And then you have kind of the, the best he knew dad. This is a dad who provides, he protects, and he cares for the best of his ability, but at times he still drops the ball. And by the way, praise God if this is your dad or was your dad, because um, that's as good as you can get, because no dad is God himself. Um, but at times, you'll still be disappointed with the, the bestie new dad because he lets you down because he's human. But regardless of your dad, whether it fits one of those or variation or something else, I have some fantastic news for you this morning. And this, I think Louis Giglio said it best. He said that God is not the reflection of your earthly dad. He's the perfection of your earthly dad. That is incredible news for us today. We're going through this Christmas series called His Name is Jesus. And we're exploring the, the wonder and awe of who Jesus is. So as we, we get to Christmas and we see nativ nativity scenes and, and celebrate his birth, 
Hopefully we'd be amazed afresh at the person of Jesus. And we're using the foretelling of, of Jesus' birth in Isaiah chapter 9 as, as like the jump off point. And we're using the names of Jesus in, in Isaiah 9, 6 where it calls him the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the everlasting father. And I did those out of order. I'm not sure why. But wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And today we're on everlasting father And we'll look at Prince of Peace on Christmas Eve. But Everlasting Father, it's a fascinating name for Jesus. So here's here's what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about Jesus being fatherly. Okay, emphasis here on father. And And a good father protects and provides and cares for his children. But Jesus protects, provides, and cares forever. Everlasting Father. Now, why call the Son the Father? Aren't they distinct persons of the Trinity, yet one God? So why, why confuse it here, Isaiah? Well, Sam Storms uh, says it best. He says this is just a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He is fatherly. He's father-like in his treatment of us. So don't get it too caught in your head. Um, of, of is the Father the Son? No, no, no. It's just that Jesus is the visible manifestation of God Himself. So He's fatherly. So let's let's turn, if you would, with me to Colossians chapter one, and we're going to look at Colossians one fifteen to twenty today, and we're going to see the nature of Jesus in this, but we're going to look at it with this lens. We're going to see these attributes of Christ, but then I want to show you how that attribute of Jesus helps him be fatherly. So Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I mean the CSB, and it'll be on the screen for you as well if you like to follow along there. Colossians 1, 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would awaken our hearts this morning. Maybe we're spiritually kind of sleepy this morning. Maybe physically we're kind of sleepy this morning. I pray that you would wake us up, jolt us awake to the wonder of wonders, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus. Do that this morning as we dig into your word. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, Colossians 1, 15, the first part. He is the image of the invisible God. The New Living Translation says it really, really well. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So he's God himself in human form. So um, imagine you're a cartoon artist, which is quite 
the imaginative thing for me because I can't draw to save my life. But imagine you're a cartoon artist and you're, you're thinking up this cartoon character and you have in your head this cartoon character. You're like, okay, it's going to be a pirate and he's going to have a hook and he's got an eye patch and he's got like a gray beard with, with four little braids going on in there. And he's going to look kind of happy. This is a happy pirate for some reason. Um, and he's got brown eyes and boots and a, like a hatchet on his belt. And you're like, okay, this, this, this is the character. But the character is invisible, right? You, you've just thought him up in your head. And one day you finally draw him and he looks like this. Okay, there's the happy pirate with the four gray little uh, beard braids going on. I don't know, is this actually a character? Does anybody know? I just found it on Google. I didn't think it was an actual character, <laughs> and I definitely didn't draw that. But this, this falls short a little bit, but I think we're getting there. When, if you think up a character, and then one day you finally draw the character, it's the visible image of the previously invisible character. The character in your head is now on paper. So it falls short because Jesus never was created. He always was and always will be God in the flesh. But he is the visible image of the invisible God. Like a, like a drawn character is the visible image of a character in your head. So if we go back to the verse, he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus shows that the perfect father shows us what the perfect father looks like in the flesh, in, in real time. See, God the Father says, I love you. God the Son shows, I love you. And when he came to this earth, in, in real tangible ways, with his friends, with his followers, he, you, you, he would literally give them a hug, right? And I, I can't wait for the day when when. We are in heaven, and we finally get a, a physical hug from Jesus Christ himself with an ultimately fatherly hug, right? But so Jesus is the manifestation, the physical manifestation of God himself. Now, some of you aren't huggers out there, and you're rolling your eyes at me, and that's all right. But I'm, I know that everyone's had a meaningful hug where it was just like, and I'm not, I'm not talking about anything um, erotic here. I'm talking about like a meaningful hug hug where you're like, wow, that, that, was, that was powerful, right? See, Jesus, Jesus, one day, if you've trusted in him, you believe in him, you will get that hug. But, but more than just hugs, he is going to represent God to us because he is God. He's the visible image of the invisible God, the tangible expression of the Father's heart. The next part of verse 15 He's the firstborn over all creation. So this is not saying that Jesus was a created being. Okay, Jesus always was. Jesus always will be. Firstborn, however, meant something different than we're thinking of it right now. We're not simply talking about the first person that's born in your family. In fact, you see in Scripture sometimes, the person who gets the firstborn privilege isn't actually the person who was born first. So... Um, the firstborn is the person who receives special privileges and inheritance and special honor and rights from their, from their father. 
Jesus receives the special privileges, inheritance, honor, and rights that no one else and nothing else in all creation receives. That's what it means, that he's the firstborn over all creation. It's not because he was created first, okay? That is wrong. He was never created. He always was. So I think maybe a good way of putting this part of the scripture is the greater than symbol. Jesus is greater than or better than anyone or anything. He outranks everyone and everything. So when we think of Jesus' fatherly heart displaying the Father's heart to us, and we think of protection and provision, it's because he is greater than everything that he's uniquely positioned to protect us. It's because he's greater than everything that he's uniquely positioned to provide for our needs. Next, verse 16, it says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. So this is beyond Jesus being greater than everything. He literally made everything, it says. Look at this list. He made, he created everything in heaven. Okay, I I haven't been to heaven. We get a small glimpse in scripture of heaven, but all of the angels, all the the weird looking creatures we read about in Revelation, um, all the, the mansions, just the incredible, perfect stuff in heaven. He created all that. Everything on earth, every single thing, every ant, every termite, every dog, every cat. I guess he created those. Um, No, just kidding. He created those. He created every animal, every human. He created every single part of us. He created everything we can see, but not just everything we can see. He created the visible and the invisible. So oxygen, you don't see it, but it's there. We'd all be dead, right? He created oxygen. He created everything. He's talking about in, with the invisible as well, he, the unseen world. He created angels. He created demons. He created everything, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, every position of power. He created that position. Everyone who's ever been the president of a country, king of a nation, everyone, who, any, everyone who's ever been in any position of authority, Jesus put them there, and Jesus created that position even. And all things, it says, have been created through him. So when we think of Jesus and his fatherly heart, if, think about it like this. If he made us, who better to provide for us? Who better to protect us? Who better to care for us? The end of verse 16 says, All things have been created, not just through him, but for him. Everything was created with the set purpose of honoring Jesus. Now, certainly some humans and some fallen angels, demons, have rebelled against Jesus. But it still remains that they were all created with the purpose of worshiping and making much of Jesus. Now, they've chosen not to do that, but that's what they were created to do. So when we think about the Father's heart, when we think about Jesus having the Father's heart, this means that everything is all about him, not us. And this is incredibly kind and caring 
for us to set us for for Jesus to set us straight here about who it's all about. It would be really cruel to leave us frustrated and dissatisfied serving ourselves. See, we sang about it in the song, His Name is Jesus, about how there's freedom in His name. You see, freedom comes when we not make it about ourselves, but we make it all about Jesus. He's saying it's all about Him, it's for Him. Whenever anything starts to become about us instead of Jesus, things start to go wrong. The most, one of the most liberating truths to discover and rediscover and rediscover again is that it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. Everything was created for him. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian in the late 1800s, said it like this. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, mine. All things have been created for him. Beginning of verse 17, he is before all things. This means that Jesus existed forever before anything else existed. So Jesus was here before every single person and thing that you will see today or that you will see tomorrow or the next day. So as you're walking around this week and maybe you see like an old building or a really old tree or a stone or you just whatever, you see some really old things. Think, wow, Jesus was here before that. See, it starts to get real when you start to think of it in in those terms. Everything that I can see with my eyes, Jesus has been around longer than that. So when we talk about Jesus displaying the Father's heart and being fatherly, he provides for us, but he provides exactly what we need when we need it. He doesn't always give us our wants. Often what we want isn't what we need, but Jesus has the profound wisdom because he was around since anything was ever around. He has the profound wisdom of knowing exactly what is best for us right when we need it. End of verse 17. He's not just before all things, by him all things hold together. This is incredible. Think about this. Your lungs right now are holding together and allowing you to breathe and stay alive, not because simply that your lungs are breathing, but because Jesus is holding them together. Your body is working. Your heart is beating. You we're not just collapsing right now because Jesus is literally holding us together. Everything on this earth is held together by Jesus. Gravity. Think about gravity. The reason I'm not just floating off into space right now is because Jesus put gravity here and then continues to sustain that gravity. The solar system. Think about this. The earth... It's just the right distance from the sun, okay? It's not too far away, so otherwise we'd freeze to death. It's not too close to the sun, otherwise we'd burn up. It's just right for life on this earth so we can sit here right now in this room and breathe. See, Jesus is holding everything together. Think about relationships. Every relationship that you have in your life that, ha- that functions even halfway decently, Jesus is the one holding that together. And that's no small task for some relationships. Think about organizations. Think about 
countries. Everything is held together by Jesus. He is the one that anything that has any sort of organization, any sort of, of uh, continuity, anything that's, that's functioning and not a scattered, disarrayed way, Jesus is holding that together. It's incredible. When we think of Jesus' fatherly heart and we think about his provision. He provides oxygen. He provides encouragement. He provides conviction even. He provides people in our lives when we need them. He literally holds you together. He holds you together physically. He holds you together spiritually. He holds you together emotionally. Jesus is the only reason any of us don't just fall apart at any moment. Verse 18, he's also the head of the body, the church. The head of the church. That means he is the leader of the church. Praise God that Matt and our elders here aren't ultimately the leaders of Stonebridge Church. We're merely under shepherds entrusted with this stewardship to lead. And don't get me wrong, we have fantastic elders here. But at the end of the day, we're just mere men. Jesus is the leader of this church. Jesus is not just the leader of this church. He's the leader of all local churches. He's the leader of the big C church, all believers from all time. And when we think of Jesus' fatherly heart, this means that he doesn't leave people like me to figure it out because he is the leader. Now, many of you have been hurt by the church. And it's even true that many of us have been hurt by one another right here in this room. And if you haven't, just give it time. People are involved. (laughs) But here's what's true. That hurt was caused by an imperfect person, not by Jesus. Jesus is the head of this church. That's why we can have hope. That's why, why we can have optimism about the future for our church right here. Because Jesus perfectly leads like the best dad any church could ever want. Find hope, find joy in the fact that Jesus is the head of our church. And he will always lead us perfectly. End of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now remember, this term firstborn here, it's used again. It's someone who receives special privileges, inheritance, honor, and rights. And so Jesus, this is saying that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead in order to beat death itself. And so Jesus, who was already number one, he was already first place, as it says here. Another term, another translation says he is preeminent. Um, My wife, Heather, did a good job with our Ignite students, third through fifth grade this week, of defining that because they were in this passage as well as, as peerless. He's peerless. No one else comes close to his status. He has first place. But it's saying there that in rising from the dead, he backed up his number one status and beat death. So Jesus is peerless in that no one else ever rose from the dead. And stayed alive. Jesus gets the firstborn privileges over death. And he did this so that we can also beat death and live forever with him. So think about it like this. Um, Like the ultimate super dad move 
would be to go out and find the fountain of youth and bring it home for your kids so they could live forever, right? But Jesus did that, but he didn't just go out and find a magic potion. He paid for it with his life on the cross and then rose to beat death. And so Jesus, in showing the Father's heart, protects us from the greatest enemies we have by beating death, beating sin, beating the devil, beating death itself. He's the firstborn from the dead. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in in him. Now here he's reiterating what he said at the beginning of verse 15. Jesus is God. He's the image of the invisible God. Why is he repeating himself? He's repeating it because if Jesus is not God and he's just another guy, and he's that would mean that Jesus is sinful by nature and we're all doomed. But Jesus is God. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This word fullness means that Jesus has all the attributes, power, and heart of God in himself. He's not second rate. He is God himself fully. And he says to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, it's not like he just showed up for a little bit while Jesus was on this earth, and he's like, okay, you can, you can be God while you're here, but then I'm taking it away. No, this word dwell in the Greek, the original language means a permanent residence. God was pleased to have all the fullness of himself dwell in Jesus permanently, forever. And it says here, notice that it says God was pleased to do this. God the Father loves that Jesus is is him in the flesh. So when we think about Jesus displaying the Father, and God the Father loves to show his fatherly nature through Jesus. It's not like God's going, well, if I have to, you know, you can, you can display my, my fatherly heart, I guess. He's like, no, no, this is incredible. I want you to do this. I'm pleased by it. And then verse 20, the crescendo of the whole thing, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God wasn't pleased to have Jesus be God in the flesh. He didn't just stop there. He didn't just stop at being pleased to have Jesus be God in the flesh. He was pleased also to have Jesus restore relationship, to reconcile God and man. Now you might read verse 20. It says, and through him to reconcile everything to himself. You might read this and go, is Paul a universalist? Now, a universalist is someone who believes that everyone will be saved by Jesus, regardless of what they believe, what they do, anything like that. They're just, everyone's in. Because it says that Jesus will reconcile everything to himself. So does that mean everyone? No. And I'll give you three reasons why. First, reconciliation takes two to tango, okay? The term reconciliation means restoring a relationship between two parties. Jesus offers us peace with God through his blood, 
However, in order to actually restore that relationship, to have reconciliation, you have to receive it. Secondly, Scripture is clear that not all will be saved. Let me show you three scriptures real quickly. Jesus here says in Matthew 25, 46, that some will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Paul said that some will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from the glory, his glorious strength, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. John in Revelation 14, 11, said that some, for some, the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. So it is clear throughout Scripture that not all will be at peace with God. Thirdly, Paul's not talking about everything here today. So when he says, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, he's not talking about today. John Piper said it like this, It's assumed Paul means all things or everything in the universe now will someday be reconciled to God. I don't think he means that. I think he means that the blood of Christ has secured the victory of God over the universe in such a way that the day is coming when all things or everything that's in the new heavens and the new earth will be entirely reconciled to God with no rebel remnants. So he's saying there will be a day when everyone in heaven and on earth will be reconciled. And Piper also notes that he doesn't say, like in Philippians 1, and under the earth. So in Philippians 1, he's talking about when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, there's going to be a day when Jesus comes back and everyone is going to bow their knee to Jesus, whether they want to or not, because they're either going to be like, yes, Jesus is here, praise him, or they're going to be like, Shoot, he actually is real. I can't help but fall on my knees and worship him. But it does not mean that everyone will have been reconciled to God. Under the earth, in Philippians 1, is talking about those who go to hell. Those who have chosen to rebel against Christ. Here it's talking about everyone in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, you might think, why would Jesus need to reconcile things in heaven, right? You look at this verse, it says, whether things in heaven or on earth. Everything's perfect in heaven. Why why would he need to do that? Well, it's simply meaning that when the new heaven and the new earth, talked about in Revelation 21, it means that everyone there will be at peace with God through the work of Christ. There'll be no sin, no corruption, no rebellion. Heaven will become earth. And it's not that Jesus needed to overhaul heaven. It was already perfect. But heaven and earth will be one then, God dwelling with man. So it's just saying that everyone there will be reconciled to God. Now when we think about Jesus' fatherly heart, it says that he made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Think about this. Think about protection, provision, and care from a father. Talk about the best protection you could get. Protection from ourselves even, from our sin, from death, from the devil, from God's just wrath because of our sin. We are protected all because of his blood shed on the cross. Talk about provision. He provides for the deepest, most fundamental need we have, which is for a savior. 
We're saved from eternal conscious torment in hell because of our sin, but we're saved to the most satisfying relationship that our hearts long for here. Our deepest longing, your deepest need, Jesus offers us. He saves us to that. And so if you're here, if, you, if you're in this time of life right now, or maybe it's just a season because it literally is the darkest days of the year. We have the least amount of sunlight this time of year. If that's where you're at, Jesus has provided for you joy and hope and a satisfying relationship with him that meets our deepest longing. And he did it by going to the cross. He provided it by exchanging his life for ours. And think about the care he has for us. Nothing says I love you as a dad, like jumping in front of a car or a train for your kid. Your kid's about to get run over. You shove them out of the way and you take the bullet for them. Self-sacrifice. That's what Jesus did by going to the cross. It's the ultimate act of fatherly love and care. Jesus displays the Father's heart by protecting and providing and caring for us better than we ever thought possible even. Now this passage, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is powerful in a, in a really super personal way to me. There's been several times in my life where I've just felt down. And I've opened up to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And it's helped me get out of that funk. Now, I'm not saying that Colossians 1, 15 to 20 will magically save everyone from their bad days or anything like that, okay? All I'm saying, though, is that it does help lift your mood to take your fo the focus off yourself and to put it on Jesus. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. See, Colossians 1 forces you to take more than 10 looks at Christ. Because we get so caught up in our own stuff, in our own heads, in our own minds, in our own little worlds, in our own little spheres of influence, in our own relationships. And we often just don't take time to think about Christ. See, there will be days when, where you inevitably feel like Jesus does not care about you, that you feel like he doesn't love you. You'll be tempted to believe that Jesus is just like your imperfect earthly dad. You'll be tempted to believe that Jesus is distant or cold or uninterested. And in those moments, remember the cross because he provided his love and his care for you and proved it to you profoundly by going to the cross. So to end, I want you to just listen to Jesus' fatherly heart from Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. 
For as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And here it is, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is your everlasting father. Let's pray.